0: Man, that ball get out of here in a hurry. Just a bit outside. If anything travels that far to
1: have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think?
2: It's time for Powell at the park. The
1: one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Cubs, Sox,
2: all your Chicago baseball news.
1: Dynamite drop in, money. Here's your host,
2: Kevin Powell. Play ball. This is episode number 27 of the Powell at the Park podcast. Appreciate you tuning in. I am Kevin Powell. Packed podcast this week. I've got James Feegan from The Athletic. You know that name. If you don't know that name, are you even a baseball fan? Are you even a White Sox fan? James Feegan knows the Sox. uh, Covers them top to bottom. Just about as good as anybody in town. So we'll talk to James, who's actually in Birmingham. uh, Was in Birmingham this week. He wrote a really cool story for The Athletic. He was at Rickwood Field, one of the oldest ballparks in America. So we'll talk to him about that. Uh, He had a good story there. We'll obviously talk about, we'll get a little minor league report from Birmingham where Luis Robert is currently playing. We'll get an update there. We'll talk about the White Sox, who are having a pretty good week as I record this. They've won four straight. So we'll talk to James about the Sox, some minor league stuff. We'll even uh, touch on the Sox on the third pick in the draft. So we'll see what uh, James thinks about what the Sox should do there. Obviously, it depends on what the two teams ahead of them decide to do. So we'll talk to James. We'll also talk to Jared Willis, who I have first time on the the podcast. Jared writes for Sporting News, for Forbes, for Chicago Magazine, does a really good job covering both teams in town. We'll do some Cubs focus with Jared. Looking forward to talking to these guys. Also, before I get to the interviews, I do just want to go on my – I'm not even going to call it a ramp. I do want to address it because this is uh, – and I'm not going to dwell on it. I don't want to do a whole segment on it because it's one of those topics where everybody's already made their mind up about it. You either think we shouldn't extend netting or you think we absolutely should and it's a no-brainer. And I think baseball should. And obviously this topic came up again because of the horrible scene that unfolded at Minute Park. Involving Albert Almora, his foul ball striking a young girl in the stands. Look, um, I think at this point it just sort of makes sense to do it, and I guess I'll address the counterpoints I think that are out there, which uh, you know I hear from from people, which is, well, you should be, you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't have your head in your phone, you shouldn't have your face in your phone. Focus on the game, watch the game. Back in my day, we watched the game. Okay, even if you're watching the game, and let's say you're down the third base line, and you're one of the first five or six rows, and one of these guys rips a ball and it goes foul, and it's one hopper, and you're dialed in, you're focused, you've been watching the play unfold, even if that's the case, there's still a decent shot, you're going to catch a ball in the chest, it's going to go through your hands, it's going to catch you in the face, that's a possibility, okay, I mean, to go to a ballpark and expect fans to be focused on every single pitch, it's just ridiculous, I mean, baseball's not exactly the fastest paced game out there, folks. Not to mention all the distractions in a ballpark. Massive video boards. All sorts of in-game entertainment. You turn around for a second to talk to your buddy talking. Uh, you're having a conversation with. You look to your left for a split second to search for the beer man. And then you look back and there's a ball screaming at you. I mean, the percentage of fans taking vicious hits from foul balls, you know, the ratio of it, I guess, is the way I would put it with the amount of balls that are hitting the into the stands, is probably very, very, very small. I don't have the data in front of me. But not every time a foul ball is hidden in the stands, there's an injury. I get that. But can't we just avoid these horrific moments when a young girl who's in the, in the stands has to be rushed to the hospital? We saw it with the Todd Frazier incident a couple years ago, which may, had Major League Baseball extend the nets to the end of the dugout. So, I, look, I just I don't really get the arguments against it. Uh, anybody that's saying it may obstruct the view of the, of the field. I mean, look, uh, last I checked, most of the seats right behind the dugout and right behind home plate are filled, right? There's some of the most sought-after seats in the ballpark. It's not going to take a whole lot away from your viewing experience, and you pretty much adapt to it within a few batters. It's not a big deal. Scouts sit behind the nets for crying out loud. If it was so bad, wouldn't they sit somewhere else? I think it's time for baseball to move it, whether it's farther down the line or all the way to the foul pole. I'll be I'll be just fine with that. And look, baseball's got bigger fish to fry than obst- obstructing a fan's view with some netting that's providing safety for the fans. Okay, baseball's attendance is down for a fourth straight year. I don't think it's because there's too much netting in the ballpark. <laughs> Right? So anybody concerned that their viewing experience is going to be ruined, uh, I think uh, I think you're a bit off there. So that's my little rant about the whole netting situation. I don't know when that changes will happen. If it's I don't know if they'll do it by you know at mid-season. Um but I wouldn't be surprised at all if by next year the, the netting is extended. It's mandatory to extend it at each ballpark. I don't know how far down the line they're gonna do it. Maybe it is all the way down to the uh, the foul pole line. Uh, So that's my little rant about netting. Clearly know how I feel now about it. And uh, that's all I have to say about that. Okay, let's get to the interviews. First up, James Feagan from The Athletic. James Feagan from The Athletic joins us now. You know that name. He covers the White Sox top to bottom. And right now he's in Birmingham. James, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Okay, you're in Birmingham. Tell everyone why you're there, and tell everyone about the story you wrote for the Athletic.
1: Uh, I am here to acquire multiple sunburns. Uh, <laughs> but in, in the meantime, uh, just the Birmingham. I was planning out a prospect trip down here, pretty much the moment Louis Robert got promoted. Uh, and as you know, as I was mapping out the date that I was going to come here, and I was talking to the Birmingham guys. they were like, "You got to come for the Rickwood Classic." And you know, they talked me into it, and I came down here, and you know, they play in uh, Rickwood. Uh, field which is the oldest uh, active professional park mainly mainly because they do still play this game once per year and it was originally uh, the birmingham baron stadium from 1910 and off of the birmingham black barons uh, the negro league team uh, and had people such as willie mays and uh reggie jackson playing down here at one point uh reggie jackson he's a minor leaguer and willie mays but he was uh, in the negro leagues before he got signed as a teenager um, so, yeah, they kind of wear old-time uniforms. They, uh, Ironically, they inducted Joe Creedy into the uh, Barons of Bar- Bar- the Hall of Fame during the game, and just kind of the, the site itself is it, it's just you know, kind of drenched in so much history that it, it, it just seemed worth it to go. And, you know, I'm kind of uh, milling around in the outfield and taking pictures, and I bump into White Sox prospect Bernardo Flores, who has already, like, climbed inside the scoreboard and is. And uh, looking around, and I, I talked to Bernardo a few times, and I knew he was like a huge both baseball history buff and kind of a White Sox history buff. He has like a lot of uh, – he kind of like – he hangs out wearing like one of these uh, 80s-style hats uh, with the Curse of Steel lot. Uh, he has like a White Sox 90s starter jacket. So I knew he was like really – this kind of seemed like his event. And I talked to him for a little bit, and he told me like, yeah, he comes down to Rickwood ever since he got promoted last year he comes there like once a week and just kind of walks the grounds and looks at all the history and, and all the old photos and stuff like that. Cause he, he's just a guy who just loves baseball that much. And uh, so, you know, I'm talking to him for five minutes. I'm like, this is my story. I interview him about that, but it was, it was a kind of fun event in general, but to see it through Bernardo's eyes and uh, just how much he, you know, you see a lot of prospects who, their appreciation for the game, really, you know, just because they're so focused on their work, it really doesn't go beyond like what's the newest thing they have to do to fix their swing or delivery or how they can get to the big league. They're kind of just, you just, know, understandably very focused on their goals. They're not necessarily uh, cognizant of who played 20 years ago, let it go, 50 or 70. So uh, for a guy who's just kind of a baseball nerd like Bernardo, uh, it's really kind of a cool perspective to see from a professional player as a young know, player.
2: It's a great piece, man, and 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 reading his quotes about his love for the game. I mean, that's that's a full blown baseball junkie right there from Bernardo Flores. So I highly recommend. Uh, and I believe scenes from Forty Two were shot there, correct?
1: Correct. Uh, yeah, the, the number movies there. I think uh, I think I read some uh, League of Their Own scenes were, were shot there as
2: well. Uh, good stuff from James. Check that out. How cool was it for you? I know you're a baseball nut. How was it? How was it for you? Just soaking all that in
1: uh yeah it was great you know it definitely I feel like during games during Sox games they're having kind of a historical stuff I'm kind of very focused on my, my job and uh you know covering the game and, and what's going on in the field so kind of more of a it's kind of more relaxed feel in the minors where you know you don't care about necessarily score or, or following events as much I just got to kind of explore the ballpark and everything that was going on a bit more so It was definitely a cool experience, and you know, as you kind of can get lost in Uh, the news of the day all the time, uh, and you're a reporter and and not really appreciate where you are and the special places you get to visit, it it was nice to kind of take a step back and relax and and, uh, and shoot some photos that I'll I'll always remember.
2: So, the Rickwood Classic is just one game a year, correct? Or do they play a series? Uh, Correct.
1: I think it's. Their 23rd annual this year, uh, but they, it's, they took a break in 2017 and just hosted it at Regents Field. But yeah, it's kind of a once a year thing. There's a whole commission for it, uh, there's a board. And because they do it, uh, I think it's pretty much the only game that still happens at Rickwood every year. But uh, it was at places built in 1910. I want to say Fenway is 1912, so I believe it slightly uh, predates
2: them. Very cool. All right. Well, check out James Peace at the Athletic and obviously all of his other stuff on the Sox. Uh, Luis Robert, you mentioned his name off the top. Um, he's doing pretty well down there in Birmingham. Have you had a chance to talk to him? And I guess my question is this for Luis Robert: Is it just a matter of the White Sox waiting for him to get a certain amount of at-bats in to, to continue to promote him up to AAA and then maybe even by the end of this year? Or what specifically are they waiting on for each promotion, I guess?
1: Um, I mean, Luis doesn't have a you know a very strong opinion about that, other than you know he wants to get to the big leagues as soon as possible. But you know, I was talking to Omar Vizquel yesterday in addition to Luis, and he kind of feels like it's a pretty good level for him it, in, in in some respects. I mean, Luis kind of I don't know. It's almost like it, it it draws parallels to hearing about like Tim Anderson in junior college, where he's swinging everything, but he's just so skilled that he can kind of barrel everything up and he can't really get forced out of his approach until he faces a you know higher level pitching and uh, you know in double a, you know triple a is more polished and a lot more breaking ball heavy but it's probably like the best stuff league that he can kind of be in without being in the majors. So the scale was very much the idea that he this is a good fit for him even though I think he's you know hitting 300 350 530 right now. Is that he's trying to put him up in the leadoff role and, and hoping that'll kind of force some patience or selectivity in him that, you know, otherwise just really can't be forced by the level of competition that he's faced because he's just very skilled and in a lineup that, you know, where a lot of guys are kind of adjusting to the level of stuff that they're seeing for the first time and uh, having rough goes of it, you know, Robert's kind of adjusting to it within weeks, whereas other guys are taking months. And, you know, it, it's hard to say. I, you know, you could probably to the majors this year, and he, you know, definitely has the raw talent and skills to hold his own a little bit. But I think he also his approach is raw enough that he would probably get exposed a little bit. And you know, he's he's really not where you would want him to be as far as just you know being patient, but. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a debate. With, is there, do you take a slow pass of them and wait for him to develop that, or you just kind of trust that really only Major League pitching is going to force that
2: out of him? Defensively, what are the question marks there? I mean, everybody expects him to be a Major League center fielder someday, correct?
1: Right. Um, I can't really come up with one. Um, so he's, he's checking all the boxes to,
2: when it comes defensively. Isn't
1: yeah, he, he moves out there very smoothly. His jumps seem fine. He's got a good arm. You know, I was talking to Blake Rutherford yesterday and, you know, he kind of scoffed at the idea that like this is a surprise what he's doing after last year. He's like, Yeah, he struggled, his hand hurt. All the time swinging, but like he's still the same def- defensive player that he was last year, which is a very good defensive player. And you know, as much as he's, it's hard to believe that you know somebody that big uh, is going to stick in center field. I mean, he he seems like he he's a natural out there. He, he doesn't seem it's not just like raw speed and uncoordinated. He's very under control. You know, you probably don't see him having a lot of diving catches because he just gets good reads and and can catch everything in stride. I, I, I really don't see any questions about him sticking in
2: center. All right. Before we get to the White Sox, any other nuggets from either Double or just the Sox farm system in general?
1: I mean, I was talking to Rutherford yesterday. It, I think they're very aware, uh, both him and, and just kind of the offense uh, across the board, that they're struggling and, and there's a degree of frustration with it. But it, it seems like he, he he's keeping his spirits up. He, it's the line I can't quote him verbatim because I haven't transcribed it yet, but he said this is going to be his most satisfying year because he's going to find a way out of this. And, you know, he hasn't really been challenged by like this before, but uh, he, he feels like there's going to be a lie at the end of the tunnel at the end of the season and that. You know, he, he's going to be a lot better for it when he finally gets out of it. So uh, it, it seemed like a good attitude from both him and, and even talking to Zach Birdie yesterday, who also was going through his struggles here. As he kind of works back to what his stuff once was uh, before surgery. All
2: right, let's move on to the White Sox, where as we talk, James, they've won a season-high four straight, Granted, it's the Royals, the Indians aren't playing that well, but still, they've won four straight, some progress being made. It is night and day, James, covering this team within the first you know month or two here of this season compared to all of last year. There's an eight- or nine-game improvement. I think it might be up to even ten-game improvement at this point. I think there's some really positive signs happening at the big league level because the Tim Anderson's, the Yoan Moncada's, Lucas Giolito, they're having pretty good years, and with all due respect to the entire roster, those are the guys that really matter to this rebuild. Uh, let's start with Giolito. What from? What have you seen from him? Because his, his velocity's up, he's striking a lot of guys out, and this is a guy who it doesn't really feel fluky because he was such a highly touted prospect coming up.
1: Yeah, he's always been a great post game diagnosis. I think now he would probably say he's a better in game diagnosis uh, of what he's doing or a moment to moment kind of diagnosis of, of what went wrong. Uh, you know, he, he's always a guy who's very studious to watch himself a video or, or, or look at his arm slot and figure out what's going on. But now it seems like he can kind of feel his way through it a bit more. And, and, and most appropriately doesn't you know panic or have concern or, or get out of his game when, when something goes wrong in the early innings. But, yeah, Lucas has always been the most, uh, you know, one of the most cerebral and, and uh, great interviews that I've encountered in the three years I've been on the beach. But now it, it seems like he's really kind of simplified his approach, both with his new delivery doesn't make him have to think about his arm angle anymore, and he's no longer, you know, kind of experimenting with his pitches and trying to see what works in the first couple innings. And it seems like, you know, probably two years ago, I would have said that really getting that curveball consistently would be, you know, the key to him coming back to the you know, elite prospect he once was because that was his signature pitch. But really, that it really hasn't come back. It's still more of a show me offering. But now he's built up so many tools that he can depend on uh, that it really doesn't need to be more for that for him. The slider that he learned with the White Sox is is really his primary breaking ball and. You know, as much as he did go to his private pitching coach in the offseason and rework his delivery, I mean, Don Cooper probably deserves some credit for that. So that's definitely his, uh, his push to, to add that to his repertoire.
2: Ronaldo, it's been up and down all year for him. What have you seen out of Lopez?
1: Uh, you know, it's just as inconsistent under the hood as it is uh, in the output. I mean, he's got days where he's, uh, you know, well, we'll talk about him getting on top of his fastball and, and having the right angle for it for where it's kind of as overpowering as it's. you feel like it should be based on the velocity. And then he has other days where it kind of, uh, uh, you know, he's getting more on the side of it and he's, uh, it's just not playing the up the way it should be. And, it, you know, I have liked his his slider and his, his changeup at times uh, uh, throughout the last uh, season and plus but you know if he can't set everything up with uh, you know commanding his fastballs on top of the zone and really making hitters respect it things kind of kind of fall apart for him a little bit and, you know we've seen the Tigers game where he's absolutely on and absolutely dominating and then there's just outings against uh, the Twins where you know he really just doesn't have any tools to turn to so I mean at this point, with the White Sox rotation as it is, it's not something to really debate. I mean, you're going to give Ronaldo another twenty starts. You're going to give him every opportunity to work it out because at this point, you have backup options already in rotation. Let alone, you know, another person to turn to. But this is probably the type of inconsistency that people point to when they argue that Ronaldo would be, uh, you know, a cool reliever down the road or something like that. I definitely, given the fact that he just last season showed that he could be somebody who, who's fairly consistent, I, I wouldn't get too panicked, but it's definitely been a discouraging start in terms of just his ability to be a consistent dude, uh, you know, once a week.
2: More Tim Anderson, Kansas City Royals beef this week, uh, James, and. Uh... Look, I don't think anybody thought that Sparkin was trying to throw at T.A., but even Anderson after the game goes, look, I don't think he was trying to throw at me, but I'm glad they threw him out. And then he went on to say, made it very well known that he is not a fan of the Kansas City Royals. What do you make of this sort of uh, growing, I don't even know if I'm going to call it a rivalry, but a little bit of a beef here between the, between the Royals and T.A.?
1: I mean, they threw at him and he got punished for it. So I mean, and yeah. they threw at him because they're salty about his, his uh, bat toss, which he very much didn't think was a legitimate position because he didn't feel like he was doing anything to be spiteful uh, toward the Royals. So uh, they, I, I don't blame it at all for being a, their division rival already. I mean, there's no reason he sh- he should have to you know play it safe or play it close to best to be polite about his feelings toward them. You know, I think the Royals got punished deservingly for the fact that they escalated the situation to where the umpires thought, like, well, we need to be out in front of any kind of exchange of retaliation. Uh, you know, that's entirely a level that they brought it to by throwing at him in the first place. So the fact that they got punished for an accidental, uh, you know, hitting of the one guy that you can't hit without it seeming like an escalation of things, you know, it's really the Royals' own fault. And I, I can't blame Tim at all for, you know, being irked or being, uh, you know, on edge against them given how much they uh, chirped at him from the dugout throughout the entire affair and made it clear their feelings towards him so even though they're not seeing it you know in interviews I think they probably made it pretty clear to the on the field how they felt about him so the fact that he's kind of uh, you know giving some reciprocity uh, in public you know I can't blame for it. it. It seems well earned.
2: Yeah, I was fine with Sparkman getting tossed there, and I just love what T.A.'s doing here. It's just fun. I mean, it's it makes the Sox more interesting. and makes all of a sudden a matchup with the last-place Royals even a little bit more interesting. I love what Yeah, I mean, can
1: you, can you imagine being excited for a Sox-Royals game, you know, just on its own merits with this with that context added to it? Seriously. You know, probably most of the baseball world is it.
2: A week from today as we record this, James, the Sox will be playing the Royals in Kansas City, and there's going to be a lot more interest than there would be if if not for this Tim Anderson situation. I love it. I think it's I think it's fun. I think it's interesting for baseball. Um, one other player I want to talk talk about, Alex Colomay has been outstanding for the Sox this year. My question is, and it's complicated because it is so early in the year, but do they necess- do you see a scenario where they don't trade him even if he's pitching this well? Uh
1: yeah, I mean it's possible. Um I feel like they definitely that was Really, one of the selling points for them for the trade uh, is that they felt like they were selling high on Narvaez on a little bit. And, you know, I don't necessarily think they were given the year he's having offensively, but maybe they felt they had kind of plateaued with how far they could bring him along defensively. Um, and that they thought that uh, Colin would be a more steady and stable trade asset just as a proven late leverage reliever who they would then bolster the value for by giving him closing opportunities and kind of re. Reestablishing that he could do that, I, 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 I given the fact that they're not kind of bolstering the rotation or kind of really doing anything to push along this playoff run, uh, I I feel like just probably the best resource management for them, even if they have to rebuild build the bullpen uh, again next season, which they probably do, given the, the payroll rule they have. I, I feel like trading him is probably just the best use of that because it, it, I really don't feel like uh, you know chasing down Boston for the second wild card. Is especially realistic if they're not going to go, you know, Gonzo aggressive and yeah. Feinck, Keuchel and uh, and Kimbrell and all that, which they're not going to. It, I, I don't think really retaining a column A for one year is really the the thing they're best served to do with a you know a kind of a widely desired trade asset and certainly all the the created money that they were budget room that they would need to replace them next offseason.
2: Okay, last question on the White Sox, James. What do you think they're going to do with Jose Abreu, currently leading the American League in RBIs?
1: Um, I've always felt that everybody was going to stick around, you know, that was really the signal they've been pushing for the last couple of years. Uh, the fact that they, you know, after 2017, when he was in great shape and had, you know, a near career year, uh, you know, aside from his rookie season, and they still kind of rebuffed all the offers that came out for him. I felt like that was the peak of his value. Like it wasn't going to get higher after that. And the fact that they kind of rebuffed that and still kept moving on with him. I really can't see them moving him at the deadline for uh, a much lower return. Um, as far as kind of, kind of internal reasons, as far as the prospects of uh, pushing at the door, you know, even though I just saw Gavin sheets, uh, hit a grand slam in person last night. I, I, that's not something that's immediately pushing him out or anything like that. So i, I they have both kind of sentimental and, uh, you know, tangible reasons to keep him on for another two, or three years. And you know, as, as weird as it we kind of seems that, you know, extension hasn't already been worked out. That's what I kind of see happening. Um, They've always kind of extolled his value to the clubhouse. and The fact that he's given them reason to hold on to his value as a player, I think would just cement that further.
2: All right, before I let you go, the draft coming up next week. Andrew Vaughn seems to be the name that continues to come up for the Sox in mock drafts. Who do you think they end up with with that three pick?
1: Uh, You know, I think it's between Vaughn and Abrams. Definitely heard a lot of, uh, you know, momentum about C.J. Abrams the last couple weeks. I wouldn't be shocked by either one. I'm definitely going to prepare a, a draft in my Google Docs about either one, but uh, I'm probably leaning towards the Abrams at this point. You know, Nick Hostetler's talked about how going very college-heavy in the last couple of drafts and improving the depth of the system. They, they feel like they have the room to take a bit more swings, and they definitely can use some up the middle talent uh, in the organization. Uh, not that you ever kind of draft for need at number three, but I think they are if they're at a point at a If they're ever at a point where they can kind of, you know, settle for a longer development path and, you know, take somebody who has more raw upside rather than someone who's more of a sure bet to provide, you know, the the main thing they provide, which is, you know, Vaughn, the super polished college bet, I I feel like they're in a position to take a bit of a swing. So that's why I'm leaning more towards they'll go the Abrams Abrams route. But, you know, neither would surprise me. And, you know, talking to scouts from other organizations, neither would be a bad pick at that slot.
2: That's James Feagan. He writes for The Athletic, athletic.com. Follow him on Twitter at J.R. Feagan, F-E-G-A-N. Thanks for joining me, James. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks to James for joining the podcast. We go from White Sox talk to the north side with Jared Willis to talk some Cubs. Jared Willis joins me now on the Powell at the Park podcast. Jared covers the Cubs and the White Sox and really all of baseball for a couple of different outlets. Sporting News, Forbes. Who else are you writing for, Jared, these days?
0: Um, Mostly those two places these days, but I do pop up at uh, Chicago Magazine every once in a while. Um, So some baseball stuff there,
2: too. Check his stuff out. He does a great job covering baseball here in Chicago. Uh, We're going to focus on Cubs with Jared, and I do want to start with I kind of went on a rant uh, in the beginning of the podcast. My thoughts on the whole extended netting situation, obviously the horrible scene that played out in Houston involving Albert Almora and that foul ball. What are your thoughts on netting? It seems like right now the general consensus through all of baseball, at least from the players and the managers and the coaches, is just extend the netting.
0: Yeah, and I I think I tend to agree. Um, Extend the netting down to – I know some people have talked about like all the way down to the foul pole. I don't know that I would uh, say that it needs to go down that far. Um, but definitely farther than it is, because if you're sitting just beyond the dugout, um, past the, where the netting is currently, that uh, you're still pretty close, and a line drive can come at you really quickly. And so, I think people need a little more protection in those parts of the ballpark. And you know, and I lo- I know that people like to say that uh, if you pay attention, if you're you know, if you're you know, plugged into what's going on. Then you'll be fine but you know none of us can really ever say that we've sat at a baseball game and watched every single pitch um so it's just not possible especially if you're there with anyone and you know you turn to talk to somebody you look down to you know get a bite of your food or whatever Um, it can happen really easily so i think yeah the common sense thing is just extend it down a little farther from where it is currently just keep people safe so they can have fun at the, at a game and not worry about getting
2: hit. Well, that was sort of my point exactly too, is you're never going to watch every single pitch. If you're in the stands, it just seems like the, uh, the smart thing to do at this point. And obviously look, we're, we're thinking about the young girl who was struck, but you know, it, it's also for the players. I mean, what does that do for an Albert Al or anybody who has to go through that sort of situation? So I think the common sense thing is just to move, move the, uh, the nets down the line. Um, Okay, Let's just focus on the Cubs here for a minute. They've dropped consecutive series for the uh, first time since the opening week of the season. Nothing to panic about, but what's the one thing that you can point to that I guess gives you the most concern about the Cubs moving forward?
0: Yeah, I think the, the biggest point of anxiety for Cubs fans should be that bullpen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're they're real close, it sounds like, to getting Pedro Strope back, which will be a big help. But they need more than just him. Realistically, if they're going to be able to lock down um, close games in the late innings, they've they've got to go out and get somebody. Um, that's I, I imagine is bound to happen here in the next few weeks as the trade market starts to open up a little. But right now, they're just the, the current mix of guys is is not well equipped to get outs that they need in the eighth and ninth inning. We saw a couple of games there. Um, last week where they dropped games in the late innings because of that and that's always you know that's always going to happen to teams but um, in a division race like they're bound to have with the brewers and and I still think the cardinals are going to be in it they just they've got to be able to get some lockdown outs in the 8th and
2: ninth innings. Yeah, a couple of people have noted, you know, and we talked about even going into the year, it was that they didn't have any power arms. They don't have a ton of swing and miss guys and I think it was have noted this, that they're 29th in all of baseball in average fastball velocity. They're, they just don't have power arms. And look, the bullpen was pretty steady for the first, what, 3-4 weeks of the season, but you had to figure at some point they were going to break because if, if you're a bullpen pitching to contact and you don't have those power arms and you know velocity is the rage in baseball now. Velocity is king. It's all That's all anybody seems to be talking about. And they don't really have that guy right now. How do they address that? I, I know you said stroke, but obviously they're going to be active in the trade market, and there were reports that the Sox, or the Cubs have also already scouted Alex Colomay from the White Sox, who we've seen. Jared, you and I have been at the ballpark for the Sox the past week right. or so, and he's been pretty much locked down. Other options outside Colomay for the Cubs, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think if they look into... You know, even even look stay within the same division as the White Sox and look at guys like Shane Green um, with Detroit. I think he's a he's a viable option. Or um, Ken Giles on the Blue Jays would be an interesting option as well. Um, or I know that uh, Will Smith with the Giants has had a really nice year so far. And so they're you know if they're going to go the trade route, which is probably their most realistic option, rather than trying to bring somebody up internally. Those are three that, that come to mind. I think Colomay would be the most intriguing option, although I do wonder, given where the White Sox are in the standings and the wild card standings, whether they might not be buyers this summer as opposed to sellers. Uh, so we'll have to kind of see how that plays out with them. But uh, I'm with you. Like, they just don't have, they don't have the power arm, and Stroke's not going to give you that. He throws hard, but not the kind of hard that you see in so many other bullpens around the league. That was one of the things that was nice about Brandon Morrow when he was healthy, mm-hmm. was that he gets to the upper nineties and even to a hundred. Uh, but we're you know where they're not really necessarily anywhere close to getting him back if they get him back at all. Uh, so yeah, they've they've got to look. They've got to look outside.
2: Speaking of starting pitching, you Darvish had his longest outing with the cubs his last start but he still was charged for with six earned runs. Uh level of concern on Darvish this year, what have you seen from him?
0: Well, I think my level of concern with him is gradually decreasing um but slowly. Uh it was it was very good to see him go as long as he did the other day. Obviously, when you're giving up six earned runs, that's that's not ideal, but given the conditions that day, that was uh what was that last Saturday against the Reds Where you know, they're a little easier for balls to carry out of the ballpark and things like that. And that's, you know, Reds have a pretty strong offense. And so some of that you can kind of dismiss to some degree. I think the most important thing was to be able to see him throw a hundred plus pitches. Um, cause he just hasn't done that. I don't think with the, it, it's been since he was, he was with the Rangers. And so, um, that was a very encouraging thing to see. And in his last couple of starts, his, his walks have, have started to drop, and so that, that's another encouraging sign as well. Now, all, Obviously, for the size of the contract that they signed him to, you'd expect a lot better performance than what they've gotten but at least the things are trending in the right direction.
2: It does feel like he's progressing in the right direction. So, good sign for you Darvish. Cubs taking a flyer flyer on Carlos Gonzalez. I think it's a obviously one of those low risk potentially high reward situations and with the Ben Zobra situation, I mean, who knows when he's coming back and this could potentially give Madden some more options in the outfield and especially, I don't think they're going to be wanting to uh put Chris Bryant back out there, considering what happened with uh him and Hayward in center field. uh your thoughts on the Carlos Gonzalez signing
0: yeah it's it's very much like what you said I think it's a it's low risk and hopefully um hopefully high reward for them because He's not too far removed from some productive seasons in Colorado, so maybe you can you can find some of that again. But I think, yeah, it has a lot to do with they don't know where they're at with Zobrist and like Madden sort of hinted to earlier this week, they're kind of acting as if he's not going to be back at all, which I think is, is the team just kind of playing it on the safe side rather than, I don't know that they have that information per se, but They're proceeding as if. Um, But I also think it says a lot about where they think Ian Happ is in his development in in AAA this year, where maybe they're just not seeing yet what they want to see. So in the meantime, they're calling up guys like Jim Aducci, and they're signing Carlos Gonzalez to a minor league contract so that they can add that outfield depth, because maybe they're, they're just not pleased with what they've seen from Happ yet.
2: Yeah, and the patience they've had on Hap could be paying off. He's batting four forty four over his last five and three sixty three over his last nine, so maybe they are just being extremely patient with Hap, who when we saw in the majors, they struck out a bunch, but we did see a lot of raw talent out of Hap.
0: Yeah, and he's, he's definitely, I mean, that's a very talented player, and I think, you know, he got called up pre- pretty young. He didn't have a ton of minor league experience, and so, it's normal. It takes guys a while sometimes to really start to put it all together. You know, we're seeing it this year. I think on the other side of town with Yohan Moncada, where he's he's finally started to bring those strikeouts down. So it is possible for a guy who's been in the league for a while to make those improvements. So it's, I don't think anybody should be writing off half just yet. And like you said, this you know I've seen some of those numbers too here in the last week or so where he's 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 doing the right thing, and so if it's, it comes together for him later in the season, that could be a, a big addition for their offense because he's definitely talented enough to, to be an impact
1: guy.
2: That's Jared Willis, covers the Cubs, covers the Sox, covers the whole baseball scene in town. Follow him on Twitter at JWYLLYS and uh, read his stuff. Always good stuff from Jared. Thanks for joining the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks
0: for having me on.
2: All right, that's going to do it. Episode number 27 of the Powell at the Park podcast. Thank you for listening. Follow me on Twitter at KPowell720. On Instagram at KPowell720WGN. You can uh, subscribe iTunes, Google Play, wherever you find podcasts. Subscribe to the Powell at the Park podcast. Thank you and enjoy your day. Appreciate you listening.